So with that, where do I sign? See, I don't even know how to sign these. <laughs> That was Governor Gavin Newsom at the ceremony this week in Sacramento trying to figure out how to sign a bill requiring new disclosure and transparency requirements on the state's charter schools. Welcome to This Week in California Education. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. The bill that Governor Newsom signed raced through the legislature with his support. We'll be recapping that legislation. And we'll be talking about a ruling this week by the California Supreme Court on public employee pensions that school districts and teachers have been watching closely. This was one of the topics, in fact, at an EdSource webinar this week on teacher pensions that explained the predicament that districts are facing because of escalating pension costs. But first, charter schools. John, this uh, was very interesting because this legislation that requires charter school boards to have open meetings, meet the Brown Act, meet the requirements of the Public Records Act, a number of other requirements, was first introduced in the legislature basically two weeks ago, and it just went through extremely quickly. Governor Newsom had made it clear that he was going to sign a transparency bill even during the campaign, and he's repeated this several times during the Los Angeles and Oakland teacher strikes. Yes, he did that, and in fact, he said there might be a moratorium on charters if his transparency bill didn't go through. And it did. It did an amazing speed. You'd think, in fact, that it would take effect tomorrow, but it takes effect next January. And by the way, I thought this was the first bill that he had signed. He's been in office less than two months. But um, Google research shows that actually, no, his first bill was on February 13th. Two bills having to do with fire safety and water. I think he wants to get out ahead on this issue of charter schools because there have been a number of bills that have been introduced that would really have a much more impact on charter schools, like putting a really tight cap on the number of schools, eliminating perhaps the rights of appeal when a charter is disapproved at the local level. Things like that were much more impact than this itself, but it's also something he had talked about for a long time. In fact, he was asked about that in a press huddle after the signing ceremony. And uh, we're going to just play a few minutes of what he had to say, because uh, I'm sure many of you are interested to hear the governor's thinking and actually his thought processes. But he was asked what his position would be on these other bills. A number of bills, as you know, have been introduced related to moratorium, related to other uh, aspects uh, of the charter school movement. And uh, we'll have to work through those, wade through them. Uh, some of those bills have been introduced for decades or at least a decade. Some bills are a little different, and my job is to see you know, where people want to go. And I just, I think these are the conversations we need to have. We need to start with transparency, and uh, I want to make sure that I'm uh, a conduit to a, a package that can be broadly supported. And that's why I'm hesitant to explicitly answer your question at this stage. Had I done that on the transparency bill, I said I want to see a transparency bill. I didn't say what type. Uh, I don't want to be prescriptive as it relates to what I expect out of this task force. Did the election play into your decision to fast-track this bill and no. charter support for your opponent no, I don't and, take... and the ugly ads against you? No. Uh, I, I've been doing this too too long. I've done that. There would probably be 100 bills on my desk right now. Uh, I just think this was an issue that uh, was long overdue. I never understood why uh, I did not cross the finish line. I wrote a book on transparency, believe in it, and just felt that this was a an important first step. You know, I don't take any of this personally. I've long supported high-quality nonprofit charters, been an advocate, uh, not just a supporter. And I'm very aware of the stresses, particularly as exampled in the 
um, demonstrably exampled in Los Angeles and Oakland, that issues related to charters, pensions, are having uh, at this moment uh, in our education system. And I think we have an obligation to get under the hood and, and see what we can do uh, collaboratively to address those issues. What do you think brought charters to the table this time and more willing to negotiate uh, on this than in the past? I think they sensed, you know, I, I, I've been, you know, I, I want to move this conversation along. I think people recognize that I've been timid on this. Um, that's why we put together this work group. That's why I announced it in the state of the state. And that's why, you know, I said I, you know, I wanted to see something uh, on my desk related to transparency. And uh, I, you know, I just think you need no more evidence than LA Unified School Strike and Oakland School Strike and fill in the blank. What's next? This is an issue that impacts almost every other issue. And uh, frankly, it's been festering for too long. And I didn't come here to, you know, pass the baton to another governor. I want to actually solve some of these problems. That was Governor Newsom speaking at the signing ceremony of the new charter transparency legislation. John, any reaction to what the governor had to say? What struck me was the phrase, I want to be the conduit for this legislation, because there is a panel that he's charged Tony Thurman, the state superintendent of public instruction, to examine the issues and come back by July 1st. Meanwhile, however, you've got this spate of bills that would impose these tight restrictions. And I think to me, the message is, hey, look, don't get ahead of me here. Go through me. We're going to go through a process. And also, the governor has put out this term, a balanced approach. He wants to bring people on both sides of the issue to the table. And it was very significant that the Charter School Association essentially backed the bill. The CTA backed the bill. They were all at the signing ceremony this week. So that's a real accomplishment. And he made some comments that he strongly supports good charter schools. That's right. He said, I've been an advocate. He used that word, yes. So I think one thing that's important to kind of keep in mind in this whole discussion because there's been a lot of headlines, charter schools on the defensive, all these restrictions. It give you a sense that, oh, the charter sector in California is in trouble. That's not really the case. I mean, we still have over 1,300 charter schools. That's not changing. We have 600,000 kids in charter schools around the state, many concentrated in places like Los Angeles and Oakland. But nonetheless, they are doing the work of teaching kids, 10% of kids in California. And these bills that have been proposed are not going to change that reality. It's certainly not in the near term. Right. If anything, perhaps it might affect their renewals. But you're right. They're educating kids like district schools are. They're also under many of the same stresses that district schools are, health care costs and most of them pay pensions, just like district schools to Calsters. And it was very interesting to me that during the Oakland strike, over 100 charter school teachers in Oakland actually joined the teachers from their district schools on the picket lines. They walked out of classes, basically sending a message, hey, we're in the same boat you are. We get the same salaries, maybe even less than teachers in regular schools. So I think we are seeing some new alliances emerging which are very interesting, and I think bear watching. Yeah, and those teachers perhaps were saying as well, yeah, we understand maybe that in places like Oakland, there is a financial stress from charters, and maybe there should be some kind of limit in places where there are lots and lots of charter schools. One thing is very clear, John, is that the charter landscape, at least on the political level, has changed 
very quickly, I think faster than we could have anticipated. And uh, even in Los Angeles, where there was a charter-backed majority on the school board, huge amounts of pro-charter money went in to get them elected. That's also shifted dramatically and uh, likely to shift even more as a result of Jackie Goldberg's very powerful, not really unexpected showing in a school board race to replace Rep. Rodriguez, who had actually started some charter schools in Los Angeles. Yeah, Jackie Goldberg is very much aligned with the CTA. She's a former legislator, and it would create a different majority if she wins in May when the runoff election happens. And she is the overwhelming favorite. She looks like she almost got 50% of the vote. So uh, you talked about stressors on school districts like Oakland. You mentioned charter schools and the financial impact on them as one of them. But another one is the high cost of pensions. And we'll take a look at that after this break. So looking at the issue of pensions that are taking up a bigger bite out of school districts' budget, the state is paying more too, employees are paying more, but districts are having to pay the biggest share of this. Yes, very big. The portion of a teacher's pay that districts put towards pension will more than double by 2021. Well, that seems significant. But there was a California Supreme Court ruling on pensions this week that a lot of people had been waiting for. And um, I had some trouble figuring out what exactly the court ruled on. So, John, please clarify. So this particular case was narrowly ruled. It pertained to a benefit that was given to public employees back in the early 2000s that enabled them to buy something called airtime, five years of airtime, which is to say you could pay for time you didn't work. If you paid your share of the pension benefits and also your employers, you could get a certain amount of credit up to five years. And therefore, when you retired, you would have a credit for more years than you actually worked. So airtime is not airtime on a podcast, but... It's worth a lot more than our airtime, yes, Louis. <laughs> okay. And so the court ruled that, in fact, the legislation was fine. You could eliminate airtime because it was not a vested right. Now, that's the bigger issue. A vested right is something you earn and it cannot be changed. And that's been the big issue under the so-called California rule, if you heard that term, that pertains to a number of court decisions over the last 70 years that said, on the first day you go to your job and they promise you pension benefits, that's a contract and it's unalterable as long as you work. And therefore, when you retire, you retire at the benefit on which you were hired. And therefore, we have a defined benefit plan, which is say if you work a certain number of years, and by the time you retire a certain salary, you can calculate your pension. And the issue there wasn't like going back and taking money away that you've already earned. But let's say you've been working for 10, 15 years, you might have another 10, 15 years to go. But what your benefits would be going forward, whether that could be changed. And on the current system, you can't change it. That's right. In fact, private corporations do it all the time. They eliminate their defined benefit pensions and they switch to something else or they just drop it. To a 401k, for example. Exactly, where the employer contributes a share and you contribute a share and it goes to an investment. And then when you retire, whatever you've earned is what your pension is. So just to clarify then, what did the court do on the California rule? It didn't. It said 
that this particular case, airtime didn't qualify as a vested benefit, and therefore you could change it. The larger issue of the California rule, there are a number of cases coming through, and we'll have to wait for another day to see what the court rules on the California rule. I think the point is that they want to say, hey, if you're going to start changing vested benefits, you have to make a better case than was argued in airtime. One of the things that came up at the webinar that Ed Source sponsored this week as part of the dissemination of the findings of the Getting Down to Facts report was whether this system should go to more of a 401k type system or whether we should kind of stay the course. I think one of the reasons that uh, governments want to do that is that it reduces their risk and therefore they can save money and they won't accumulate any more debt than they already have. Denise Bradford, who is the teacher herself and is going to be the teacher representative on the CalSTRS board, she makes an impassioned case for the current system. I've had the opportunity to speak with thousands of educators. Not surprisingly, many of them share my story. At some point in our lives, a colleague or maybe a family member who was a teacher explained that teacher salaries are barely adequate, but if you can manage, your pension will make up for it. Look at your pension as deferred compensation. I think this point is missed a lot. It will be modest, but you'll have a secure retirement. In my case, if I retire at 55, I would receive $3,500 a month. It has taken me 25 years to work through the steps and columns of the salary schedule, adding a master's degree to earn $100,000 a year. That was Denise Bradford, a teacher from Saddleback Unified School District in Southern California. But her view that we should stay the course and why we shouldn't go to a 401k system wasn't uh, fully endorsed on the panel that uh, we had put together. One of the dissenters was Corey Codell, a professor at the University of Missouri, who wrote a paper for the Getting Down to Facts project. And he says a more fundamental reform will be required and that the state ultimately will have to go to a 401k system. I think eventually there'll have to be structural reform to these plans because it's just too easy to accrue debt. And I think, put me down, 50 years from now, we're going to have seen a huge shift away from these defined benefit plans as happened in the private sector. In principle, we should be able to manage them, but we can't seem to avoid the moral hazard and the debt accumulation. But John, why do you think the prospects are for the kind of fundamental reform that Corey Cardell thinks is necessary? Well, first you need the court to say it's okay, and then from there it's just to the legislature, and I think it'll be a hard sell. Other states have done this change that we're talking about, but in fact the legislature could do this on its own for new workers, workers employed tomorrow for the first time, but it hasn't. And then it will take a great deal of lobbying, I think, and persuasion for them to shift to something different. And let's face it, a 401k benefit is really not that great. It really does shift the risk to the workers. And Jacob Hacker from Yale University talks about the great risk shift, puts all the burden on the workers who are then subject to the vagaries of the stock market. You have to design it really carefully to protect the workers for sure. So that's why I think it'll be a while before this actually happens. Well, Governor Newsom, when he was campaigning, was asked, in effect, would, would you think about changing the benefits for our current workers? And he said he would be opposed to it. Well, there you have it. And uh, not necessarily the final word, but it is the final word for this podcast, which we have brought to you thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Thanks, Kobe. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Bye.